Hi everyone. Just before we get stuck into this episode of A Moment of Change, we wanted to tell you about the wonderful work being done by Afghan Welcome, a coalition of charities and civil society groups working together with the UK Home Office to offer Afghan refugees the support they need to start a new life in the UK. There are many ways you can support Afghan Welcome as they deliver clothing, housing, employment and advice to Afghans in need. Members of the On Purpose London team are proud to be involved with the Crisis Appeal and you can check out afghanwelcome.org to learn more. Welcome to A Moment of Change, brought to you by On Purpose London. On Purpose is a non-profit organisation and a vibrant community of people that believe in putting purpose before profit as a way to create an economy that works for all. 2021 is a pivotal year in the fight against the climate crisis, and a key moment of change will be the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. Across the series, we'll be talking with changemakers from different backgrounds about what COP26 means to them and the work they do. We'll be chatting with people from areas including fashion, food and the green economy, discussing the challenges of the next few years and what practical actions we can all take to make a difference. So hello from me, I'm Katie and thanks for joining us today. I'm also here with Ella. Hi everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the future of food, a rather big topic, but we are going to cover two key points. One, what does a net zero sustainable diet look like and what can we do as individual change makers? And the second, how do we get there? How does society and the food system itself need to change in order to enable us to get there? So I'm interested in this topic. How can we ourselves individually make choices to have a more sustainable diet and support a more sustainable food system? But I acknowledge it can be overwhelming and challenging given the bounds of the food system we're currently operating in and the complexity of it. But Ella, before we introduce our guest, what are your thoughts? So I think it's a fascinating topic. I can't say it's something I'm hugely knowledgeable about. It's something I'm very interested in. I've been reading up a little bit. I do understand that it's perhaps time that we addressed our meat consumption, for example. So that's something I'm trying to work on. But I also understand that, you know, even if the entire world became vegan overnight, there's still going to be issues that need to be addressed. And I know that our guest is very hot on topics around this and also things like agriculture and some of the technology and innovation that can help us leap forward. So I think it's going to be a really exciting conversation. Great. So perhaps now it's time to introduce our guest, India Langley. So welcome, India, to the Future of Food podcast. Would you like to give yourself a little bit of an intro? Yeah, of course. So hi, I'm India. I'm, I'm head of communications at Let Us Grow. So I do food and farming uh, and sustainability communications there. So Let Us Grow provides innovative indoor farming solutions for vertical farms and greenhouses that try to take account of plants, people and the planet. So what we have is a combination of a sort of farm management software platform called Astara. And we've also made some aeroponic technology that aims to maximise growth rates while minimising the environmental impacts of growing fresh produce. And the reason we do this is to try and make sure that sustainable farming can also be a sustainable business for those who are growing the produce. Amazing. Thanks, India, and, and welcome to the podcast. So let's just dive straight in, if that's okay with you. We're going to cover off first a little bit about what does a net zero diet look like and what change as an individual can we actually do? So to start things off, what are the highest impact changes you can make in your eating and drinking habits 
to reduce your impact on the earth? So I'm going to be really frustrating in my first answer on your podcast uh, and I'll give you one hard and fast rule and then I will just talk about why the rest of it is just grey and murky and really confusing. So the hard and fast rule is eat the food that you buy. Food waste is a huge issue in our supply chain. To put it into perspective, if food waste was a country and you lined all of those countries up in order of the greenhouse gas emissions that they produce, it would be the third largest emitter after China and the US. So that is astronomical. So please just make sure that you're not wasting food within the home. That's it for my hard and fast rules. The rest of it's grey and murky. To be fair, that's uh, that's pretty clear. But can you just give us a little bit of an understanding about where it gets more complicated? So we are given lots and lots of different ways to look at how we can be more environmentally sustainable in the food that we eat. Some examples are going organic or going vegetarian or only eating locally, but it all starts to get a bit confusing. I'm going to pick apart local food and going vegetarian as two examples. Great. So in the UK, it's not always possible to go 100% local. So if you look at seasonality, obviously, we have winter, spring, summer and autumn. There's a period in that time that we call the hungry gap, where actually we're not producing that much fresh produce in the UK. So this is between March and June. Fresh produce is just very, very thin on the ground. So we're actually using about 72% of the UK for agriculture, but we're still importing over 75% of our fresh produce. So it's not always even possible to be eating entirely local if everyone in the UK were trying to do it. Another example, if it was possible, is whether or not it's the most environmentally friendly choice in the first place. So can you give us an illustration of how that kind of plays out in practice? I'm going to use the example of an apple versus a banana. So you might think that an apple that was grown in the UK and then uh, stored here would be the most environmentally friendly choice. But if that apple was taken and it was put in refrigerated storage and it was kept for most of the year until we were about to have our next apple harvest, it would actually have quite a high carbon footprint because of the refrigeration. If you contrast that to a banana, which will have been picked relatively freshly put on a banana boat and then shipped to the UK because the shipping emissions when it's literally on a boat rather than air freighted and they're actually incredibly low and bananas are never stored in refrigeration because it's very bad for them it will make them turn black so that it will actually have a lower carbon emission than an apple that has been stored all year in a fridge. So that does make total sense and um... But obviously, one of the big conversations at the moment is around meat eating. Can you give us some of your thoughts around that? So imagine you're in Sainsbury's and you're trying to decide what sandwich to have in your meal deal. And you've got a a ham sandwich and you have a cheese sandwich. You might automatically think that the cheese sandwich is going to have lower emissions than the ham sandwich. But that's not actually the case. So Dairy cows and cows for beef as well have really, really high emissions because they're something called a ruminant. They need a lot of land to graze on. And they're also burping and farting quite a lot, which leads to a lot of methane coming out of them. They have really, really high emissions, whereas pork is a much more sustainable meat to be eating. This is just a bit of a red herring. I'm not saying either of these things to dissuade you from uh, going local or going vegetarian. It's often really fantastic to be doing these things. If you're going local, you're also supporting your local economies. um, You're supporting farmers. And also, generally speaking, if you look at the big picture, 
being vegetarian or vegan is actually a more environmentally friendly diet overall. I'm vegan myself. I'm not dissuading you from doing it. But what I'm just trying to highlight is that it's actually a lot more complicated once you get into it. So of these, what do you think we should prioritise given the carbon lifecycle food? I mean, you labelled a lot there of different levers you can pull, but which one, in your opinion, is there the most important? So there are so many different ways of looking at it. And as I say, there's no silver bullet. It's all really confusing. What I would consider the most important lever to look at is land use and land use change. Agriculture is the leading cause of deforestation, which is a fancy name for habitat loss. And we're, we're currently in this great mass extinction. It's what Extinction Rebellion are rebelling against. And what we want to be doing is making sure that we're conserving the biodiversity, the amazing biodiversity that we have on Earth. But even if you were to look at it from a, a much more selfish human perspective, these natural wild environments are huge carbon sinks. And by destroying them, we're causing an opportunity loss to be taking away some of that carbon that we're emitting into the atmosphere. And the scale of the problem is is just so big. So if you if you look at all of the land that humans use, we use 98% of it for agriculture, which is staggering. That means that everything that we think of as being incredibly damaging to the environment, mining, motorways, infrastructure, skyscrapers, all of that fits into that tiny, tiny, tiny 2% of land that we're not using for agriculture. So I think it's a It's a really big consideration how much land actually goes into producing the food that you're eating. That would be my number one priority. So as consumers, what steps can we take to help us get there? There's um, a really, really great initiative done by Eat Lancet called the Planetary Health Diet. So what that's designed to do is it's sort of an optimal diet for people and the planet. And one of the really great things about it is that it doesn't really cut anything out. You can still have meat and dairy and fish and all sorts of other things. But it ups the amount of planetary health, things like vegetables and fruits and legumes and nuts along those lines, plant-based foods. And I think it's much more easily accessible and it puts it all into one neat package for people. I guess just to pick on that a little bit more and dig into that, do you think there are red herrings within the food system that are misguiding us in our decision making? Talk there about some of the helpful guidelines we can use as consumers, but are there red herrings that are guiding us the wrong way? Oh my God, there are so many red herrings. It's an absolute minefield for consumers because I think a lot of the tools that we've been given to try and figure out our way through the food system are also being used by marketeers to try and sell us products as well. And there are so many accreditations out there, so many labels that it can start to get really confusing for consumers. There's MSC for fish and Red Tractor and Fairtrade and Organic and Rainforest Alliance and on and on and on. And I think it's it's actually quite unreasonable for us to expect consumers to go away and research all of the standards that all of these different labels and accreditations need companies to meet to reach them. I think what we really need is a single system for food sustainability like we have with nutrition labeling. There are so many different frameworks that's like vegan, local, organic, and none of them will do it all on its own. None of them really tell the full story. So I think it's unreasonable to expect us to be able to make these decisions without something that's standardized. Foundation Earth, an organization that are trialing a system this year, which is actually quite cool. So they're working with some of the biggest food retailers and manufacturers. So it's sort of Tesco's, Morrison's, Pepsi, 
Danone. And what they're doing is creating a sort of traffic light system um, and an ABC system. So it goes from green to red and from A to E uh, to sort of show the impacts of our food. It's weighted about 50% to carbon and then 17 each to water usage, water pollution and biodiversity loss. I think something really great about that is it shows all of the foods on an equal playing field so that we're using just one system. No, I think that's super, super interesting because there's a lot around at the moment about developing food labels just on carbon efficiency, but it shouldn't just include that. It should include more things about biodiversity loss, etc. So that's really interesting. So, India, you've mentioned uh, a lot about sort of where we need to get to. Are we actually making progress in this direction to get to a net zero diet? Oh, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but not quite. Um, so the FAO, um, so that's the Food and Agriculture Organization, so that's part of the UN, released a really, really catchily titled report, Greenhouse Gas Emissions from the Food System, Building an Evidence Base, real clickbait. So what they've looked at is how our emissions from food have been increasing since 1990. And actually, we've risen from roughly a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions, human-caused gas emissions, up to a third, which is quite a big jump. One of the leading drivers of this they've uh, they've pointed out is what they call net forest conversion. Um, so this is taking a natural ecosystem and turning it into agricultural croplands or pastures. This is just a fancy name for deforestation. And before 1990 and still afterwards, it's the largest emissions of greenhouse gas emissions over this period. And a lot of this, unfortunately, is being driven by a sort of global trend towards what is often referred to as a Western diet. So the per capita emissions from countries that use a a Western diet, so like the UK, the US, is nearly twice that of developing countries. So we need to really think about how we're changing our food system to sort of move there. Often a Western diet includes things like more meat, more processed foods, higher levels of sugar and things along those lines. So we want to start focusing more on sort of whole foods and more plant based foods as well. You talked there, India, more about the kind of the whole foods and plant-based foods and how we can transition and thoughts around that. But where can we go as consumers and individuals to learn a bit more about what constitutes a net zero diet? So I already mentioned the Eat Lancet Planetary Health Diet. That's a really, really great resource. But I actually can't recommend an amazing book enough. It's called Food and Climate Change Without the Hot Air. So that was written by an amazing woman called Professor Sarah Bridal. Sarah uh, also has an organisation called Take a Bite Out of Climate Change, which has lots of free resources for schools and to educate yourself as consumers as well. What potential ideas do you have to minimise food waste? So one of the easiest things to do is to plan your meals in advance. So what I do every week is have a little look in my fridge, a little look in my cupboard, see what I have and then see what I can make with that. And then just fill up my shopping list from there. A really nice added benefit of that as well is it will significantly reduce your grocery shop. If you have access to a smartphone as well, there are some really great apps. Too good to go if you like convenience food. They're sort of selling off really cheaply food from restaurants. And then also Alio, which is a sort of food sharing platform. So you can share food before it goes to waste. Obviously, you've spoken a lot about how actually... Avoiding food waste also goes hand in hand with being cost effective. But in my experience, the assumption tends to be that eating well for the planet often means spending more money. Do you have any thoughts on that or how we might be able to crack that myth? 
Oh, that is a really good question. It is true that healthy food is more expensive. Uh, I think it's three times more expensive for a healthy diet than an unhealthy diet for processed foods and shelf-stable foods. Maybe don't quote me on that one. But I think one of the most important things is governmental change, to be honest. Uh, I think we need to be having policies put in place that makes healthy food more accessible. And another thing to look at when it comes to whether or not people have access to healthy food is literally their location. We have lots and lots and lots of food deserts in the UK where the only food that you have access to is shelf-stable processed foods. And one of the things that we could potentially be doing is bringing food growing closer into communities and making sure that people are more involved in food growing as well. Urban farms are a really great example of this. There are, there's a great urban farm, the community farm in Bristol, and then another great project called Grow at York up in Yorkshire, uh, where you can sort of go and you can get access to the food. I actually think they give away uh, some of the produce that they grow for free in their community shop downstairs as well. What do you think it will take to create a world without hunger or food waste? <laughs> Isn't that the million dollar question? I think the the only honest answer is that we need systems thinking and joined up thinking. The thing with food is that it touches absolutely everything. It's not just the fuel that drives our bodies. It's incredibly important to our politics and how we run our countries. The way our cities have grown, have grown around like the food transport hubs and they've grown around restaurants and community organisations feeding people. It touches everything about our environment, the the land we walk on, the air we breathe, the water we drink is all affected by how we create our food and distribute our food. And it's so important to our social ties as well, our closest relationships, the cup of tea that you share with your mum when you're catching up, or the relationship that I have with the woman who I've never met who picked the beans in my coffee this morning. It touches absolutely everything. And technological advances that you can't see a way that they're related to food will affect how sustainable our food is in the future. Obviously, we need the the public and the political will to change our food system. But there are a million other things that we just don't think about that could actually impact food. So could you give us an example of a couple? I'm going to give you two slightly uh, off the wall examples. One is feminism and the other one is energy, just to show you uh, how joined up food is. So by allowing women more equal participation in agriculture in lower income countries, we could actually prevent 2.6 gigatons of carbon from entering the atmosphere by 2050. Let me just break that down for you because that's that's quite a lot. And also, that's not a mistake. I actually do mean gigatons. Uh, So that's 2 billion metric tons. So in low income countries, women make up around 43% of the agricultural workforce, but only 10 to 20% of the landowners are women, as in many countries, it's actually illegal for them to own or control land. But despite this, women are producing as much as 80% of the food in these countries. There are gender specific obstacles that are putting these female farmers at significant disadvantage before they've ever been able to plough a field or sow a seed. And this includes sort of lack of access to land, financing, training, education, working conditions. And it means that even though they're just as capable, these female farmers produce less food on the same amount of land. So something I've talked about a little bit earlier in this podcast is that uh, agriculture is a big driver of deforestation. So if we were able to increase the amount that these 
women are growing on that same amount of land, we could actually reduce the amount that they're expanding into natural environments. So the FAO has estimated that if we were to give them the same access to resources, they would actually increase the amount that they would grow by about 30%, which is staggering. Wow, it's incredible. So that's feminism. Might seem completely tangential to, to our sort of food system, but that's one side of it. Another side is energy. So if we were able to sustainably increase the amount of energy we were producing, we could impact all sorts of different points along the food supply chain. We could impact refrigeration. We would be able to offer refrigeration more widely, which would um, enable us to keep food from spoiling. We could reduce the amount of emissions in transport. And we could also change the methods of production. It would unlock methods along the lines of vertical farming. Vertical farming is often held back by the amount of electricity it uses. It's around about 40% of the running costs of a business. And it also significantly contributes to the carbon footprint of the farm. So if you can switch to renewable energy, you can reduce costs. You can also reduce the environmental impact there. Wow, some crazy figures there, India. Just to segue into the next question then, what role will innovation play in reshaping our food system? There's infinite ways to use innovation to reshape our food system. If we know anything about our food system is we know it needs to be shaken up. We need a little bit of disruption here because we can't continue on in the trajectory that we're going. And I think something that's really important when we think about innovation in our food system is that we need to really hit all of the different points in the food cycle. Obviously, I have a, a big lens on vertical farming coming from Let Us Grow. So one of the, the big ones is how the food is grown. And what we like to think of is, is sort of increasing sustainable intensification. So if you don't know anything about vertical farming, it's the practice of growing crops in vertically stacked layers. This means it's much more space efficient. Vertical farming is usually incorporated in something called controlled environment agriculture, which aims to optimize plant growth. And it controls anything from sort of lighting, irrigation, fertigation, which is just the nutrients that you're supplying the crops with and the environment in which they're growing. It protects the crops from disease, pests, uh, poor weather and poor climactic conditions, which is going to become increasingly important as sort of climate change changes our weather patterns. And we see more extreme climates. We see more extreme weather patterns. And then also by growing inside, you can also grow anywhere with no need for natural land. So you can divorce the need for growing land on natural soil. Could you tell us a little bit about how Lettuce Grow is using this sort of technology? Lettuce Grow, we use a process for growing plants called aeroponics. And what this is, is you grow them in an air or mist environment without the use of soil. This is a, a little bit different for the usual methods for vertical farming, which is called hydroponics, which is where you submerge the roots in a nutrient solution. Something many people don't realise actually about plants is that they respire, like you or me. Everyone knows, or at least I think everyone knows, about photosynthesis, where a plant takes carbon dioxide and light and turns it into energy. But they also need to breathe and they do that through their roots. So one of the cool things about aeroponics, which is innovation that we've been working with, is it more closely mimics a natural soil environment where you have these air pockets. And by doing this, you can realise much faster growth rates and through that much higher yields. With these sort of higher growth rates, with these faster yields and out of a sort of natural environment, you can really start looking at land use and land use change, which I think I talked about a little bit earlier in the podcast as one of the, the main drivers for greenhouse gases in our food system. But I think one of the 
really important things to note, and actually you noted this earlier, is that sustainability is not just about carbon emissions. It's about all sorts of other things as well. And vertical farming uh, it actually uses 95% less water and fertilizer than traditional farming. You don't have any fertilizer runoff. There's no pesticides going out into the environment. And you can also reduce sort of food waste and use less packaging because you can grow a lot closer to the consumer. You can actually grow within cities or within the exact environment that you're going to be serving the food. And I think this bridges the gap between sort of high intensity and low impact production. Obviously, that's just about how the food is being produced. But you can also look at other things like how it's packaged or processed. There's a really great innovation. One of the things they're doing is they're creating reactive labels that go on food packets. And so what it does is as the food goes off, the label changes color. And what this can do is it can replace the kind of outdated system that we have at the moment of sell by dates and use by dates, which are confusing to the consumer and they're not standardized. And they often lead us to throw away perfectly good food. Which seems like such an easy win. Another point in the cycle that we can look at is how food is distributed. So something that can be really useful is to have a more distributed supply chain rather than these sort of centralized hubs that we have at the moment. We've actually delivered a couple of really cool projects targeted around this exact issue with our drop and grow uh, aeroponic container farms. So one of these projects is called Greener Greens, and it uses a drop and grow to grow fresh produce on site at the University of West England's campus. And this is part of their the university's initiative to reach net zero by 2030. And then we've delivered a sort of modified drop and grow container farm at an amazing project called Grow at York, which is growing food on site in a community container park for local people and restaurants. It's got this really lovely window in the side of it. So um, the community can kind of come in and sort of press their noses up against the side and look at vertical farming in that environment, which is really nice and talk to the growers and really get engaged with the project, which I think is something really lovely, a really sort of important part of changing our food system is making sure that everyone feels actively engaged and really knows what's going on. And then I guess the sort of final point about the the food cycle that we really need to disrupt is sort of how food is consumed and disposed of as well. There's this really, really cool company in London called EntoCycle. And what they do is they upcycle food waste by feeding it to insects. So they turn that food waste into insect protein. If eating insects is not your bag, that's totally fine. Um, They are perfectly safe and healthy to eat. In fact, they're a great source of protein, but they also turn them into fish meal so you can eat the fish instead. And you touched on this before. We've talked a lot about food waste, social inclusivity, making sure that it's not just carbon footprints that's kind of encompassed within changing the system. There's also other factors, biodiversity loss, water efficiency, etc. There's a lot going on within the food system. And as you rightly pointed out, it touches all aspects of the way we live. What partnerships and collaborations do you think need to be involved in order to change that food system? So... Something I would like to see more of, or I guess at least better of, would be collaboration between supermarkets and farmers. So at the moment, obviously they are working together, otherwise food wouldn't be getting to our plates. But at the moment, the relationship is not particularly collaborative. Business practices of supermarkets are really driving waste. So things like late order cancellations, retrospective changes to supply chain agreements, or really, really hard cosmetic specifications all cause a lot of food waste to be produced within the supply chain. I'd like to see more of supermarkets working actively with suppliers to ensure sustainability. 
One of the ways I can see this working really well is by the supermarkets sharing their forecasting data with their producers so that they can more closely tie their growing schedules to the demand. Because crops can be grown faster and also you can be a little bit more agile within a, a controlled environment farm because you're not reliant on the weather. You can sort of shift your crop cycles so quickly. You could really, really easily sync up the supply and demand more tightly to reduce waste within the supply chain. So whose responsibility is it really to make it more accessible, to empower people? How do we get people to make the right decision? So this might be a slightly unpopular opinion, but I actually just don't think it's the responsibility of the consumer. It's a full-time job of food sustainability researchers to seek to understand all of the myriad of factors involved in our food sustainability. And I just don't think it's reasonable to expect that of the general population. What I do think is that it's the responsibilities of the companies that sell us food to make their impacts really clear to us. And alongside that, It's the responsibility of governments and policymakers to ensure that those companies are not only doing it, but they're doing it in a way that's standardised and really accessible to the consumer. Whose role is it to ensure that going forward, health is also an aspect that's considered just as importantly as the ongoing sustainability of the food system in itself? So when it comes to making the information clear to the consumer, Actually, the nutrition labelling system that we have in place already is actually a fantastic model for a sustainability one. So if you pick up any food item that may be near you, you'll see a sort of traffic light system on it. It has a breakdown of the calories, the salt, the sugar, the fat, the protein, the carbohydrates. And for everything other than, I think, calories, it will be a traffic light system of green, yellow and red so that you can understand whether there's too much fat in it, too much salt. Um or too much sugar or whatever it may be. And I think something like that would be really helpful for consumer understanding. And I don't think that it's an either or. I think we can have both of those on our products. So, India, if people are going to be walking away from this podcast, taking one message with them, what should that message be? I think the one thing that I would say and to really, really hold in your hearts is that you can make real change on a local level So I would really encourage you to get involved in local food projects such as urban farms or food redistribution centres or even starting your own project. Local change can make really big global impacts if it's done smartly, if it's done strategically. So there we have it. That was our conversation with India Langley from Let Us Grow. Thank you, India, and hope to see you again soon. I think Ella and I took a lot away from that and I hope you all did too. There's a lot of great learning points there and tips for us all to be individual change makers. This podcast series is brought to you by On Purpose London in the run-up to COP26 to help us understand how we can all be better change makers for a new green economy. If you'd like to learn more about On Purpose and the associate programme, please go to onpurpose.org. If you've enjoyed listening today, please like, rate, review, subscribe and share on wherever you find your podcast.